As this morning's scripture reading concluded, I heard one of you say, Wow! Let's pray. O God, open to us the mysteries of your word. And allow us to hear and understand your grace. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning I'm going to <clears throat> talk about this story in the Bible, this story about morality. I'm going to use a couple of churchy words in talking about it because I'm not sure that our culture has words that are quite as helpful. One of the words is repentance. Repentance, the idea that we are genuinely sorry for our wrongdoings and wish to acknowledge them and turn our lives toward something better. I'm also going to talk about the word sin. Sin continues to fall out of favor in our culture because it seems so judgmental. Sin is the idea that all of us, at times, seem to succumb too easily to our darker passions, lust or greed or envy. And taken that way, sin is actually the opposite of judgmental because it openly acknowledges that we are all in the same boat, struggling with what it means to be human and therefore less than perfect. The beauty of talking honestly about sin and repentance is that only by taking these things seriously can we arrive at genuine Forgiveness. Forgiveness. The desperately needed thing that restores people to life when something has gone wrong. I'm going to start with an analogy that is admittedly not a perfect one, but it got me thinking this week. I love trees. I especially love big old ones, the kind that are all over this neighborhood, giant oaks and maples. One of the great trees near my house is in my neighbor's yard, right next to the property line. It has full, beautiful branches that stretch out and provide abundant shade in both of our yards on these hot summer days. It occurred to me the other day that if that tree ever fell down, if it were struck by lightning in a storm, it is large enough to crush most of my house. It is closest to the baby's room, and then to our older children's rooms, and the tree is big enough to stretch right across the house and also reach the room where Anna and I sleep at the other end of the hallway. I imagine some of you are thinking to yourselves, whereas you chuckled, what an awful thing to even speak about. 
Of course, the reason I can speak about it, the reason that I can live with the tree there every day of my life, is because it's a healthy tree. It has deep, strong roots. Additionally, the likelihood of a lightning strike is so small, as is the idea that the tree would fall in just the wrong direction. And, well, you get the point. In this way, the tree is like many, many things in our lives, things that we do knowing that there is some small amount of risk, driving a car, getting on an airplane. In all kinds of cases like this, we are able to tolerate risks and the anxiety that comes with them. We are able to tolerate those things because we are grounded, rooted in something. Like the tree that I spoke of is literally grounded by its roots, we know that bad things may happen, storms may come along, but we hope that they will not. And when they do come, we believe that our lives are grounded in something that will get us through the hardship we may face. Many people of faith would call that thing God. There is a more complicated version of this anxiety I am talking about. It arises when we have done something wrong and begin to think that we may have to pay for it. When we think we may deserve something bad happening to us. We all have done things that are wrong, and we all have our regrets, and sometimes we wonder if God will figure out a way to set things right. This is when the random possibility of tragedy becomes a little bit more frightening. In this morning's scripture lesson, King David has done something terribly wrong. The background to the reading we heard is the story some of you will remember about David and Bathsheba. According to that story, David is the king of Israel. Everything has go been going right for him. God is smiling upon him. Then one day, David is on the roof of his palace and he sees Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, a married woman whose husband Uriah fights in King David's army. She is in a nearby residence. He can see her. He wants her. So he sends for her. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David attempts to cover up his wrongdoing by calling for the husband Uriah, giving him military leave from battle so that he will come home and sleep with his already pregnant wife. When Uriah refuses out of honor and loyalty to the army, David sends him to the front lines where he is killed. Just in case you operate under the assumption that the Bible is a book full of nice sayings and sweet Sunday school stories, this story is marked by all of the sordidness and treachery and deception of a Game of Thrones episode. 
David doesn't seem to think he is going to get caught. He is the king. His newfound power has clouded his judgment such that it is not even clear that he's feeling guilty or realizes the gravity of what he has done. Enter Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. It is his job to remind Israel and their kings of what God requires of them. Nathan needs to get David's attention. So he tells him a story. (coughs) He presents it as if it is a legal case needing King David's judgment. The story is about a rich man who gets hungry for lunch and slaughters the single ewe lamb, the prized and only loved possession of his poor neighbor. Nathan's plan works. David is enraged by the story and the despicable behavior of the rich man. The story is not actually a legal case. It is a parable. And at the height of David's anger, Nathan points his finger at King David and says, You are the man. Writing about the story of David and Bathsheba... Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann comments, Notice that Yahweh, that's God, Yahweh does not do anything. We have no word of punishment from Yahweh. We get only a sure sense of moral coherence. No matter who you may call, no matter who in the world may call you king, God will be there to remind you of the law. In this story, Nathan then proceeds to announce God's judgment as he understands it. What is clear and important in this story is David's response. David states, without qualification... I have sinned. I have sinned. Nathan has shown David how his status and his passions have led him to do something terribly wrong. Brueggemann comments that the essence of this complicated web of a treacherous story is in this simple statement of David's and two others in the longer story that in the original Hebrew have exactly the same cadence as one another. Bathsheba says, I am pregnant. Nathan says to David, You are the man. David says, I have sinned. The entire narrative is caught up in these three phrases. Morality in the Bible is often characterized as a lot of one-dimensional rules lacking in context. This story shows something different, a depth and richness in understanding of what human failure and redemption is really all about. 
David and his family will suffer as a result of his abusive adultery and murder. How could they not? But David, having owned his wrongdoing, hears Nathan say to him, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The story is harsh to our modern ears with its suggestion of retribution from God and the idea that David's sins are paid for, specifically in the death of his son. Let me be clear that I don't believe for one minute that God behaves this way, and here's why. This story is part of a larger narrative that is meant to craft something else. In this kind of ancient literature, the focus is not on anyone in David's family, not any of David's son. The focus is not on Bathsheba. We know that because none of those people are addressed even by their name. The story is about David and David alone and his development as a man of God. In order for him to continue as God's king in Israel, he has to learn that he is not exceptional, that he is not above the law. He has to be truly sorry for his sins. He has to see them. David thought he could manipulate life and death of other people for his own benefit. And in order for this Bible story to advance, he must experience sorrow for his wrongdoings and receive God's forgiveness. Hearing a story like this, it's hard not to think about the endless news cycle of powerful people caught up in scandal. We are often quick to pass judgment on their actions, and then we forget them as soon as one story is reported and the next one comes along. The judgment of these celebrities and politicians, while it may be deserved, doesn't seem to me like the most remarkable thing about our culture's treatment of these stories. What is remarkable to me is our culture's utter disregard for the two most important movements in David's story. Repentance and forgiveness. The thing that makes David a memorable king and one worth reading about has nothing to do with his wrongs or his perfection or his exceptionalism. It has everything to do with his willingness to say out loud, I am a sinner. His ability to continue being a leader is dependent on God's forgiveness, real forgiveness. Our culture, caught up in its repeated public flogging of people caught in scandal, seems to have lost any sense of what real repentance looks like. We have likewise lost what it looks like to offer forgiveness and to restore someone to community 
when they have learned from their mistakes. Let me be clear, my observation here is not an excuse for David's behavior or anyone else's. The story is clear that David's life will be worse because of his mistakes. In forgiving, God does not make history disappear. Also, I am not insinuating that we are all going to pay for our sins the way David pays for his, for you all know that life is not fair in these ways. I guess what I'm trying to say goes back to my initial illustration. Many of you have come to visit me in my office and have told me a story of yours, some version of how you fear that a tree is going to fall on your house. Or perhaps it already has. And you fear that God wants it that way because of something you did. I might have chosen to respond to that with some trite moralism or platitude, but instead I chose to speak about it today in relationship to this story. In this story, a powerful person who has been faithful to God does something wrong and gets caught. The results are bad for him. Sometimes that happens to us. We get what we deserve. Other times we don't because life isn't fair in that way. Always we have the chance to acknowledge our sinfulness and to receive God's forgiveness so that we do not continue to carry that past around. And then there is grace. Grace. The word we say a lot in church, but often fail to understand in the times when we need it the most. Grace means that though the world may be interested in punishing you for your wrongdoings and then forgetting all about you, God does not share that interest. God takes no pleasure in retribution. God's kingdom is not advanced when people live in fear of their past, when they skulk through life waiting for their sins to catch up with them. Grace is costly because repentance is important. But grace also has tremendous value for when we realize that we have it, that we have it already, we can walk through the world accepting that we are not perfect, that we have never been perfect, and having confidence that God has a future for us anyway. Returning to that analogy once more, just like that tree has deep roots that keep it standing in a storm, People of faith are meant to be rooted in the knowledge that whatever harm does come along, we are loved by a God 
who promises to sustain us in the storms of life. This is what is remarkable about David. Not that he makes a horrible mistake, but that his life is rooted in a faith that tells him he can admit his sin and there will be life on the other side of it. And people who have received this miracle called grace, all of us, we are called to model this kind of thinking before others. In a world that often forgets forgets repentance and forgiveness, this is an alternative way of living when the judges of the world come along. It restores people to life together when they have gotten lost. Just like this sermon originates out of stories some of you have shared with me, it is also an invitation. The need for forgiveness and the gift of grace is perhaps the hardest part of our faith to understand and accept. I struggle with it myself. It is so contrary to everything else we hear. If you are troubled or confused or moved to speak by something that you have heard in David's story today, I hope you will not hesitate to speak with me or Jana or one of the many here who do care for you and who are sinners like you and who wish to share with you this community. This community that, like many of, of many others, God has built on forgiveness and grace. Amen.